Welcome to the Tosifists podcast. Thank you. So I'm, I'm Tovia Moldwin. I'm a PhD student in neuroscience at the Hebrew University, and I'm here today with uh, Bina Kugler, who is one of the most interesting people I've ever met in my life. I met you, mm-hmm. I met you for a few hours at a Shabbat dinner, uh, and yeah. the, experience, the experience blew me away. So I, I just thought it would be great to have you on the podcast. Tell us, tell us a bit your story, the short the short version. Okay, the short. First of all, thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure. And yes, I remember we had a wonderful Shabbat evening. It was a lot of fun. So to give you a bit, a bit about my background, I have a bit of an unusual childhood upbringing. My, I'm originally from Germany. My parents are originally from Germany. But I was born in Nepal in the Himalayan mountains. And I was raised in West Papua, Indonesia. And for those who don't know where that is, that is the west side of the island of New Guinea. That is north of Australia. And the right side is Papua New Guinea. Left side is West Papua. And the island of New Guinea is the second largest island in the world and has the second largest virgin jungle that exists to this day in the world. And my parents are linguists. They study unknown languages. And in 1978, my father discovered a tribe, the Fayu tribe, in the jungle, very, very deep in the jungle. And that is where I was raised. Okay. Um, and, uh, and where are you, where are you living now? What are you up to now, these days? Right, yeah, these days. Right now, I am live. well, right, I travel a lot right now. I'm, I'm in Lausanne. I'm in Switzerland. And I sort of pendle between Switzerland, Israel, uh, Sri Lanka. I was in Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands. I, I move a lot. I move around a lot. So at the but the moment I'm in Switzerland. Um, and you're also you're you're conducting uh, anthropological research, right? You're visiting a lot of different different tribes and cultures, or at least you you were the last time I was talking to you. Yes, yes. It's it's a it's a passion because. I mean, I, I grew up, I, I moved into the jungle when I was five. I left when I was 17. So, and then before that, I was in Nepal, in the Himalayan mountains. So, so most of my childhood was spent in very, how can I say, very, yeah, in, in really virgin territories, be it the Himalayan mountains, be it the jungles of New Guinea. And so there's a part of me that always, it's like going home in a way. And so for a number of years, I went back. I, I, I lived in, in, in Europe for a bit. I lived in Japan. I lived all over the place. And, and then uh, several years ago, I actually went back into the jungle for about five years. I mean, real jungle. And I was looking for a cure because I'd gotten ill and nobody, you know, it's a lot, that's, that is a story in itself. But I was looking for a cure. But that's how I ended up back in the jungle. And while I was there, you know, I, I traveled around through villages, through mountains, and came across an incredible amount of, of you know, great amount of lots of interesting stories. But for me, it was, in a way, it was like coming home again, because it was, it was, it's a world that I know. It's a world I grew up in. Yeah. Uh, so, so to me, um, uh, I, I find uh, your, your story interesting um, for, uh well, you could call it one or two reasons, um, but first of all, I just in in general, uh, it's it's very interesting. It's because uh, most most people, 
especially in the Western world, but I think even in many places in in the East, we live in a very we live, of course, in a in a globalized society that. Um, uh, and there are, there are a lot of ideas and technologies that have spread all over to the point where you sort of cannot really completely disentangle what is what is sort of uh, like a pure cultural differences versus what 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 are ideas that have kind of traveled um, via osmosis uh, between uh, between cultures, especially because of British imperialism. Um, you know, some of the ideas of the Western tradition really went everywhere. Um, and so uh, I think that um, anthropology of tribes that that uh, really did not have that much contact with the Western world is really interesting to see what other sort of modes of existence in terms of um, culture and ways of thought uh, and things like that. Um, what what other possibilities for, for organizing human behavior are out there? Um, and then also as a neuroscientist, I'm really interested in, in the question of, um, uh, like we, we sort of think about human cognition in a certain way, that people, uh, that people think in a certain way, that people act in a certain way. Um, but a lot of our thinking about this is, again, biased by um, our, our assumptions about how people work in, in the Western world. And so having information about, um, about more isolated tribes gives us an intuition um, about uh, what is what is innate versus what is learned, uh, and in fact, uh, it's it's one of one of the few ways where we can actually probe that question. So when psychologists are interested in sort of the, like a nature versus nurture question, um, so one of the things that, that they'll do is they'll look at um, very young infants, uh, and um, and they'll see what what sort of things the infants sort of figure out on their own without uh, having had that much exposure to the culture around them. Um, but that is that is very difficult uh, because, um, you know, because uh, people and in, infants get so many messages from the culture when they are um, even incredibly young uh, because they're yeah. surrounded by it. Um, and that's why it's really important to look at um, anthropology to see, you know, what things are universal among different cultures, and then we can say, well, okay, so maybe this this starts to be um, this is something that we can call innate. Um, but so so I want to I want to get back to to your story. So tell us um, a little bit what it was like uh, growing up in uh, in Babylon, uh, New Guinea. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, one of the reasons I actually started looking like really when I was as an adult started looking into these cultures was actually to understand myself because there was no one when I, I mean, you have to imagine I, I grew up. Okay. I grew up in, in a, in a, in an area where for thousands of miles around us, there are no stores, no roads. We had no running water. We had no electricity. There was no other white person there except us. And um, so when I and, you know, I grew up in this culture, which which was when my father, which I will go back to in a minute, which when, you know, when my father discovered them were still living on were, were living on a Stone Age level. Uh, there was cannibalism. There was a lot of internal warring going on. It was a very, very tragic situation, unlike what people always think. It's a paradise in the jungle. Uh, it was not like that. And but, you know, there were many good things about it. But when I when I returned to the West when I was 17 and, you know, there was no one there, There's there was no one there to at that time, especially there was no one there that had 
any idea how to deal with a situation like mine. So I was pretty much just left to to fend for myself. And it was 20 years of culture shock. And, and eventually, you know, I began to understand and the older I I'm getting and the older I'm when I went back and I went, I began to really look at these cultures from, and I, you know, from a view of an adult now, and having been in the Western world, I began to recognize things that I never recognized before. And I would say, now I understand why I react in a situation where everyone else would be, why are you acting this way? Why do you react this way? Why am I afraid of things that here nobody else is afraid of. But then, you know, take a 17-year-old girl from, let's say, you know, New York or wherever, put her into the jungle. And even after 20 years, I don't, personally, I do not believe that you ever 100% adapt to a culture in such an extreme, cultures that are that extreme, you never really adapt 100% to them. So, but to go back to to uh, the Fayu or the discovery of the of the Fayu tribe, um, when we arrived, we arrived in West Papua in 1976, I believe, 76, yeah, 1976, we arrived. And in 1977, my father was asked to go into the jungle because a, they, there, was a, there was this, um, people knew that there was an undiscovered tribe in an area. Nobody knew exactly where they were. Um, they knew about where they were. And, and they, had, they realized that this was a complete different language as compared to the language of the tribes that were in that vicinity. So my father was sent in, which that in itself is a very long story, which I won't tell today, but he went in there and after several trips, he actually ended up meeting with them. And, and that was, uh, they, and the, the, the Fayu at the time weren't even aware that there was an outside world. They didn't know that white people existed. And they uh, they were in a very very difficult uh, situation in that there was a lot of war going on, so and of course my father didn't know this. I mean, in and it's it's uh, it, you know it, I really admire my parents. I have to say I really admire them. An incredible job what they did. So so and he my father after he met with them and uh, you know he asked them you know I'd like to come live with you and learn your language. Can I come here with my with my uh, family? And they said yes. So we came in and about a year later, my father lived with them for about a year and learned their language, learned their culture, which is very important, which I will talk again later on about why that's so important. And after a year, we went in and in order to get to the fire territory, you have to take, there were two possibilities. Either we would take a small you know, airplane, a small Helio or Aztec or Helio at the time we had, I think it's called. And then uh, we would fly to a village, which was not that far away. And then we would have to go four to six hours by boat upriver. And that is an adventure in itself, because this is like, I mean, incredible, virgin to beautiful, beautiful areas. But sometimes the river would be over flooded. There would be a storm. So a lot can happen on these trips. Um, the other option was going by helicopter. We had a Bell 47, I think it was. Great, great to fly in, especially when you're flying over the jungle. Beautiful. So I arrived there about a week after my seventh birthday. Uh, we arrived with the Fayu, and I had already been living a year on a jungle base. So for me, it was, since I remember, for me, it was just always paradise. I loved it. And uh, we lived by a river. We had a very simple house, and we had, uh, yeah about as simple as it can get so the I don't personally I don't remember no I don't we were I was never afraid I was never afraid of the Fayu it was it was exciting we uh you know we picked things up children are very adaptable it's a beautiful thing about children 
they adapt very, very quickly. So, so my first memories of the Fai was, of course, they were, they were totally fascinated with us because they had never seen white children before. And when, you know, then they saw our white, you know, we had blonde hair when we were young, we all had blonde hair and blue, blue eyes. So they were totally fascinated with it. And in the beginning, they, they used to come and they would always rub our skin. They would always rub our skin. And my father asked him, they said, what are you doing? And they said, well, we're trying to rub the white stuff. stuff. We're trying to wipe the white paint off your children's skin. For them, it was, you know, the concept of us being white was just, they were fascinated with it. But there's something else that that's a total misconception in the Western society. We always believe that, you know, we are a very good looking race of people. But the natives, the real, real, you know, people in the jungle, they think we're terribly ugly because they say, they told us, you're not white. This is what they say. We're not white. They don't call us white people. They call us colorless. For them, we are colorless. We have no color. And they once said to us, they said, you know, you look like a corpse that's been laying too long in the water. That's how they saw our skin color. So, so they were fascinated with it in the beginning, and then, but after a while, they realized, you know, we were we were like uh, we, we were like them. Of course, they realized that, and 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 we made some really great friendships. But it took a while. It took a while also because of that was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think the the skin color was the major barrier, or was one of the major barriers um, for you to to integrate, or uh, were there was it other things also? Uh, no, we never had us. We children, we never had any problems integrating at all. The skin mm-hmm. colors. It was actually the skin color that enabled us to integrate, because when the Fayu were, I mean, these are things that we found out bit by bit. When when we came into the Fayu territory, there was uh, what you call a blood war going on, and there was uh, the Fayu in itself had split up into four different clans four different groups and they were not only were they having war amongst each other among these four groups they were also at war with the tribes around them and they were so the fire were known to be so vicious so uh, they were incredible warriors that even the tribes around them were terrified of them that they were i mean this is the, the, the whole story of how they were discovered and everything that's a long story but it's it it the other tribes were really terrified of the Fayu because they were so they were so brutal warriors but they were caught in this in this war amongst amongst themselves and when my father came in and this is something that that is very interesting a lot of people don't don't understand that isolation of a culture is often the death of the culture and when my father came in to the to the territory, they had within two generations killed each other down from several thousand members to 400 men, women, and children in four clans. That means 100 per people per clan, and and uh, there were several reasons why. But one of the one of the first things after my father made contact with them, one of the first things that they said to him was, they said, "We want peace." We want to stop killing each other. We want to stop fighting, but we don't know how. Because there was no one there. It was They had no idea that there was an outside world. They were, and everyone was caught in this blood war, meaning you killed my uncle, so we have to kill one of you. Um, you know, everyone, everyone was in the system of, of having to be killed or kill because it was all about revenge. And the reason it was, and this was another issue they had, 
the Fayu did not believe that a human being could die of natural causes. So there were only two ways to die, with an arrow or a curse. But a curse, of course, had to be put on by a human. So let's say someone dies of malaria or an infection. Right away, it was said that's a curse. So because it's a curse, they said, oh, do you remember last week we had an issue with this clan? So that means they put a curse on, on this person, on my uncle or brother or sister or whatever. So that means we have to go revenge his death. Let's go kill one of them. Then they would go kill one of them. And they said, oh, they came and killed one of us. So we have to go kill one of them. And it came to the point when we came in that the Fayu children didn't know. They had unlearned how to play. They didn't know that playing existed. They never played. They never smiled. They always sat with their back against a tree close to their parents. And it was only when we came in, how children are, they would watch us. In the beginning, they would watch us play because they didn't even know. And then we had like a ball with us. We'd play in the water. And through time, this generation actually began to play with us again. They had, they had, they, I mean, it's, it's, it, it was really, really sad situation. So, so there was a wish for them to have the peace. And I, and my father said to them, he said, listen, he said, I can't bring you peace peace he said you have to make yourself he said but what i can do is i can create a platform where you can start communicating again and that's actually what happened and it took it took over 10 years it took a long time because you know my father said always said you can't enforce peace it doesn't work long lasting peace has to be made they have to do it themselves and i mean imagine everyone had lost someone through someone else through, you know, a different clan and for them to make peace took a, took a long time, but they managed to do it, which is, which in itself is also an incredible story, how, how that was, how that came to be. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, so that's, that's incredible. A lot of stuff there, but weren't, weren't your parents, um, and, and yourself, weren't you afraid being part of this, um, this massive sort of war like did you did you were you involved in it like did you did you experience fighting going on things like that yeah we yeah personally yeah yeah oh yeah we we did experience it um but that's another misconception a lot of people have generally when you go into a, a tribal area or to an area which has not been explored and you run into you you know, meet up with tribes. Generally, the whole conception that they come and they kill you or they capture you or they kidnap you or they put you in a pot, that's, that doesn't happen. Um, there, there, there's a very strong, what they call law of nature there. That means if you don't break one of their rules, they will never do anything to you. And because, and this is, ah, yeah, going back to the white skin, that was the whole issue of this. Because we were, we had white skin we didn't fall under because we were different because of our white skin they said oh these people come from a complete different you know world so to say so they have nothing to do with our fighting and our our issues and everything so we were outsiders we were we were neutral for them because and of course we you know we made we paid a lot of attention not to break any of their laws as long as you don't break any laws you're fine they don't, they're not going to kill you. They, they don't harm you. Now, if you go in there and you break a law, and this is something I always, that's why I don't discourage tourists from going into the jungle, because there are things that if you don't know, understand the culture, you can very quickly get killed by doing something which for you may be normal for them. It's, it's absolutely taboo, not allowed. So we, and that's why my father actually lived with them for about a year was to learn their culture, to find out 
what is permissible, what is not permissible, you know, what can you do, what you ca cannot do, what are the rules in their society, and once you know those, then you're completely okay. So for them, we were neutral. We never had an issue. Now, fighting, yes, we did have fighting. We did have trouble fighting because when when my father asked the chief at the time, the first chief he met, that was Chief Bao. He said to Chief Bao, he said to him, and, and this is something I admire greatly with, about my father. He said, listen, he said, I'm not coming in here to rule over you. I'm not coming in here as a chief or as a boss. He said, I come here to serve you. My parents were linguists, but they were also missionaries. I have to put that also. I'm not into that, but they were also missionaries uh, on the side, but they were mainly linguists. So um, so when, when Chief Bao spoke to him, my father said to him, we're here to serve you, not to rule over you. And he said, Chief Bao, he said, first of all, do I have the permission to come in here with my family to live among you? And he said, Chief Bao thought about it for a while. And he said to my father, yes, you have my permission. And my father said, where do you want us to build our house? And the chief said, right here. And we built our house right here, not realizing, and this was a very clever, very clever move from the chief Bao, is he had us build our house in an area which was actually bordering uh, several of the clan's territories. So we were actually right, you know, right in the border between three different clans. And of course, you know, when they came to meet us, or to trade or to meet us, talk to us, of course, they would, you know, come together. And then oftentimes they would start fighting, you know, you did this to me, you did this to them and whatever. And then, you know, war would break out, they would do their dance. Uh, and then some once sometimes it would break out into a full fledged war. But it's not, it, it's different. It's not type of the war where everybody goes around killing each other till everyone's dead. These wars, when they do start shooting last maybe two, three minutes, four minutes, and then it stops. So, so that, yeah, and then we would go out, we would bandage them, but we stayed, when it came to that, we stayed, we stayed out of it, simply because my father always said, well, we, until did something did happen, which is a very interesting story of what did happen at one point, but they never harmed us, on the contrary, they always protected us. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm also, I'm interested in what you said about uh, part of this having emerged from the belief that people don't die of natural causes and that you can only die if someone puts a, a curse on you. So it, yeah. it seems that if, if they weren't if they weren't fighting before this, so it would seem that, th that that is not a belief that they had always had, right? But it's somehow something that that I don't know what spontaneously emerged uh, like a uh, an idea that sort of spread like a disease and that that sort of started the fighting is that is that a good way to to sort of describe it that this like idea crept up that you know every that this part that people must be dying because of curses instead of natural causes no it's actually a different reason and that has to do with that the fayu uh, culture was a dying culture and one of mm -hmm. the symptoms of a dying culture is number one there's no more music there's no history there's no future there's no past uh, they don't, because there's no, there's never a tomorrow and there's never a yesterday. There's only a now. And I know there's a lot of books out saying it's true. In, in this society, we have, here we have an extreme and there are several extremes that I can uh, explain what, there were several extremes between the culture I grew up in and the culture we have today. We live here in Western society. In Western society, everything is about the past and the future. With a Fayu, everything is about the now. And both are very destructive. So there needs to be a balance. And this is what I learned. I learned a lot of great things also in the jungle 
I had contact with other tribes too, but mostly, you know, and one of the things we always get taught was that there needs to be a balance. So because with the Fayu were a dying culture, they had uh, only one more legend left, actually, which which we found out 20, I think it was 25 years after we'd been there already. My father found out that there was, he happened to tell him, oh, yes, we have one legend, which, you know, was a very interesting legend. It was it was actually the legend of um, the flood and mm-hmm. the town of which we don't know where they picked that up, but it was a tower. Of, they, they, so that in itself is also a very interesting story, but the, their legend, the one legend they have. But they had no uh, music, no instruments. They had no, uh, they were gatherers and hunters. They, they had no gardens. They were often hungry. They were undernourished. They had very bad malnutrition. Uh, the death rate among newborn babies was 70, 80%. Um, they didn't live further than 40, 45. So they died very young. And because knowledge was not passed on, you never had a son or a mother say to the daughter or, you know, this plant helps with this, this plant helps with this. And because of that loss of knowledge, they also lost the knowledge of saying we can die of natural causes like infections. Because, you know, like when, when someone came with an infection, they didn't bother treating it because it's a curse. Nobody, you know, there was no effort to to treat a wound or nothing. It was only when we came and they saw, oh, wow, this actually works, that they began to understand that whole concept again. So th- it had to do with their, the, with their yeah, with, they were a dying culture. It had to do with the loss of knowledge that they had in never passing on knowledge. So from one generation to the next. So imagine this, every generation had to start from zero again. And it doesn't, it doesn't, eventually you lose and lose and lose and you go down and down. Right. So that's, that's really incredible that something like that could happen. Um, and, and again, I'm, I'm sort of wondering, right, the, what, was there a point in Fayou culture where they were passing down knowledge and then it, it stopped for some reason? Yes. Yeah, definitely. They're they're Yes, absolutely. I mean, they would they, they did have they must have had legends. I mean, for them to have this, the you know, the, the the flood story and the Tower of Babel, which they which they put in, which is very interesting the way they describe it. But it's pretty much the same. Uh, besides, they even they even have the name of the man and woman who were there during which they say, you know, what happened in the Tower of Babel. There was Bisa and Baisa and they were actually the Fayu. So we don't know how many generations this goes back or where they must have picked up something. We do believe they must have had some form of contact with the outside world. And we discovered many years later that there was actually a Dutch expedition that came across the Fayou. And when they came across the Fayou, there were there were many Fayou. They were a big. That's how we know that they killed each other down. And it was only, I mean, the they, the Dutch must have gone there in the 1910, 1910s or something. So we know that they did once have contact with the outside world. But by the time we came, that that was never passed on to the next generation. So they had no no knowledge that white people or anybody else besides themselves existed. For them, it was an unending world. Nobody knew what was past you know, the next village or past the mountains or they didn't know. And then they were too afraid to go also. Mm-hmm. Um, and so can, can you say a little bit more about uh, how your father ended up being involved in, in the resolution of the conflict? OK, well, I can tell the story. It's, it's a great story. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so we we'd always my, my parents had always had this uh, this philosophy of staying out of the war, 
staying out of the fighting. Now, what they did do oftentimes is that they would try to actively encourage you know, they would do things to try to not even get to the point where they would start worrying. For example, one of one of the things was that um, they they often they were often hungry because they didn't have gardens. There's not this is we we lived in a swamp area. Swamp area does not have a lot of food. We didn't have I mean we brought it in later, but we didn't have uh, bananas and papayas and all these tropical fruits that we know that that didn't exist there at the time. I assume because the mountains were too high regions. I don't know. It was too far off from other places. We didn't have it, so the food was very limited. And oftentimes you would have these groups coming to trade with us. We had a trade system going on, so they would come and then they were hungry. So sometimes, you know, when we noticed things was getting a bit, you know, voices started changing, they started getting more aggravated with each other, they're fighting, you know, they start arguing, you know, my mom would make like this big pot of food, like rice and beans or something that she knew, and then we would give it to them. And it's amazing how many times that stopped, because nobody wants to fight on a full stomach. That was one of the things we did. Um, Another thing my mom did once, I remember, was that she put on classical music. They love classical music. They, yeah, they don't like rock. They don't like the sound, which is very, like, I used to do that when I would go to villages. I would put on different music to see how they react. And there was one village I came from when I put on classical music, they freaked out. They they were hmm. so afraid, yeah. So even that in itself is very interesting. I always thought it was fascinating. How do these tribes that have very little or almost no contact with the outside, how do they deal with, it? you know, what 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 is music for them? So, but the Fayu, they loved classical music. They didn't like the other. They didn't like beats and rock. They didn't like that. And I think it had to do with war because for them, when they do the war, they have like a beat. There's like a beat of a sound that they make when they do the war. So they didn't like that, but they loved the classical. So she would put that on and, you know, it wouldn't take long. They'd all be sitting there, you know, they'd stop their arguing and fighting. They'd come and they'd listen to the music. So we did that. But still, every once in a while, nothing helped and the war would break out and it would get really bad. And we had been there a number of years and it was one of these situations where another war broke out. Um, they were fighting. And the way they do this is that they start arguing and then they, they do this war dance. They actually do a war dance where they where you have two groups that they, you know, they run away from each other. They have the bone arrows. They have bone arrows and stone axes. So they have their bone arrows. Then they run towards each other. They run past each other. They turn around. They stomp on their feet. And they do this and they make a sound. Hours and hours and hours up to eight hours, just nonstop. And they dance, each, they dance until they're in a trance. And we used to watch this from the window because it's very interesting to watch is when you do this long enough, they, they come into this trance and then their voices change, their movements change. And, and it's, it's very, very eerie. And I, I remember the atmosphere would get very dark. It's a very strange atmosphere. So, and then sometimes it would just, you know, after so many hours, generally because it got dark, they stopped. But sometimes someone would shoot an arrow and the fighting would start. They would fight, you know, shoot back and forth a little bit, and then everyone would disperse. But it was one of these situations they were going back and forth since hours. And my, I had an older sister, Judith, and she had a very sensitive hearing. So you listen, and this is around your house, and this is hours and hours, and there's nothing. I mean, we didn't have electricity, so it wasn't like we didn't have TV. We had nothing. So you'd sit there, and you'd just listen to this, and it drives you crazy. It's, it's hard to deal with. And at one point, my sister was just losing it because she's she was very sensitive, very beautiful, sensitive, artistic soul, um, you know, and very sensitive hearing, and she just she couldn't deal with it. So my father, I've never seen, I've seen my father lose it twice in my life. He's a very patient man. 
two times have I seen him lose his temper. And that was the one time I saw him lose his temper. And he, he just, maybe there were other things going on. I don't know, but he lost his temper. He ran out among the, you know, them doing their war dance thing. He grabbed their, their, their arrows and he started breaking their arrows over his knee. And he was yelling at them to stop. Today, he said that was the stupidest thing he could have done. But he yelled at them to stop. So after a while, you know, because these people are all in a trance. It's not like they're, you know, you can't really talk to them. Their eyes are bloodshot red. I mean, by the time they're like bloodshot red. So they stopped and, and you know, and then and they were like totally, they were like, shocked out of their trance because they're seeing this white man who never loses his temper, just screaming. Then he was grabbing their bows and arrows away from them. And he said, and then he, he took the two chiefs and he brought them to him and he stood in front of him. And he said to me, he said, listen, he said, do you hear, he was screaming. He said, do you hear my daughter? Do you see my children? He said, they are afraid. He says, I, and he told them, I cannot do this to my family anymore. He said, you have two choices. He said, either you go, you take your war somewhere else, or he said, I'm going to take my family and I'm leaving. And he turns around and he walks into the house and he was sitting there. And I remember he sat down on the, we had this wooden bench and his whole body was like shaking. And it was about half an hour and, you know, and I remember peeking out the window and they all huddled up, you know, and they were talking, you know, talking, 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 talking. So, you know, and you imagine this, like half an hour before they had been ready to kill each other. And now they're debating what to do. So after half an hour, they called out my father. And they said, they said, listen, Klausu, and I'll say, explain why Klausu, if you remind me later, I explain why they had a tone language, which is very interesting. So they cannot pronounce words that don't have a vowel at the end. So they say Klaus, Klausu. Uh, my mom's name is Doris. So it was Doris. So, so they called up my father and they said, Klausu, they said, we don't want you to leave because since you have come, we finally have hope that one day we will have peace. Please don't go. And they said, we have decided to set up, this is the first common rule that they made on that day. They said, we decided from this day on, he said, we're gonna put a boundary around your house and the helicopter pad, and then there was a little village. He says, we're gonna put a boundary. And the rule is that anyone who comes to this place is not allowed to take the weapons with them. You have to leave the weapons outside of the boundary. So they, they put these rocks, like rock boundary, you know, all around. It was just these rocks they put all around. And sure enough, from that day on, and it was, they, they didn't, when they came into this boundary, they, they didn't take the weapons with them. And in the beginning, they were very, they were very nervous. And what they would do is they would, like the men, they would sit inside the boundary, but right on the edge of the boundary. And then their weapons would be like right you know, they could still grab them, but they right on the other side because they had never been without the weapon since they were children. Never. And but after a while, we began to notice that they would move further and further away from the weapons because they began to realize, hey, this is a safe zone. Nothing's going to happen. And because they didn't have the weapons, you know, what's the use of arguing? Because if you don't have your weapons, there's nothing you can do anyway. So in the first weeks, they would just sit there and nobody would talk because they didn't know what to talk about before. It was always about who killed who and, you know, how they're going to kill each other. And all of a sudden, they didn't know what to talk about. But then after a while, they began to tell each other hunting stories. That's the way it started, hunting stories. Then over a while, the communication, you know, started to build up and build up. And one day I was, I was 
a child. I was, I was one day. I was, I was, I was still a child. That, well, no, I was actually a bit older. I was walking to the village where, which was in the boundary, and I noticed that there was a young man who wanted to build a hut, a house, you know, and he was standing there. He didn't see me, and he was, and you know, because of, you know, because of this being a safe zone, people were starting to build the houses inside of it, but it was getting tighter and tighter and tighter, and you know that there was no space really to build a house anymore. And there was a young man, and he's looking at this, and he was just standing there looking at these rocks, and you know, there was absolutely no place for him to build his house so he looked around you know thinking like no one no one was watching him and he took the stones and he replaced them but the thing is he replaced them just in a little bit further so that his house would just fit inside that little space so instead of being you know circular it was like circular then a little circle where his house was and circular again and over time, this safe zone, even without moving the rocks, began to grow and grow and grow and grow. And eventually, they stopped fighting altogether. So that was the only time my father actually, you know, got involved in the warring zone. But it also changed something for them. And it was the first law that they put down as a group, like as, as an entire tribe, where they said, in this safe zone, there will be no more fighting. And there wasn't. There wasn't. We did have one more incident many years later, but from that time on, it it stopped completely, and and that was the last time we had war around our house. So, wow, that's a, that's an incredible story. Um, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm wondering, I'm wondering if this story has, uh, um, if it has ramifications for conflict resolutions in in other settings. You know, I'm 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 sitting here in Israel now, and of course we have. Um, the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict going on. I actually just talked uh, talked with someone last week or on the last podcast uh, about it. Um, yeah. uh, your your story would seem to suggest uh, that um, that what's really important is is to create uh, a neutral space where people can come together and not necessarily even uh, discuss matters of substance, uh, like you said, like hunting stories. Um, but uh, you know, just 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 be able to to communicate and have um, some sort of uh, connection which isn't at all related to whatever the conflict is based around, uh, and then that can sort of be a, a beginning to um, uh, to peace. Yes, yes. I mean, it, it worked with the Fayu, and it was, and they're one of the few tribes that, even from the other tribe, that always. That developed in a very unique way and that always kept that peace because it was a peace that they made. It was not enforced on them. It was not enforced by, you know, by law. It was not enforced by, you know, an outsider. It was a decision they made. And that's what my parents recognized very early on. They said, we cannot bring you peace, but we can, you know, we can set a platform. It's a, pla- a neutral platform. And communication and a lot of you know a lot of conflicts are created by miscommunication at least my experience uh, you know that I've had is and and the communication when it started with hunting stories and you know I mean there's a lot of forgiving to do also I mean there was a lot of issues they had with 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 trauma not trauma trauma was interesting they didn't have a lot of mental issues which we will go back to because that's a very interesting subject why they didn't have mental issues fives didn't have there was no mental issues among them so um but you know it took it took a number of years for them to get to the point where uh, you know where they were able to really forgive each other and they started intermarrying also the the chiefs started marrying their daughters to the other clans to 
to unite them, and they are united. Today they're united. They do still have their territories, but they're united as one tribe because they've started intermarrying like within with each other, the groups, which was important because, you know, there weren't many people left. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so, so, so that, was, that was really fascinating to watch as a child. But on the other hand, it also, I mean, the Fayu, they, they had the one side of them which was warring and all that, but there was another side to them is that they were, like my father always said, they were the kings of the jungle in a way. The knowledge they had of, of, of the jungle was phenomenal. Unfortunately, not of like medicinal stuff that I learned from other people, but other tribes, but they had an incredible connection to nature, which is very different than what we always think. You know, the, there's this, I, I, a, I run across it oftentimes, especially in Germany, is these, you know, people who say we need to become one with nature, which means you go and hug trees. Now, if you were to hug a tree with a fayu, I think they would think you have really gone mentally insane because it's a different time of type of being one with nature. And, and one of the things is that they, that they taught me growing up was to hear nature and they taught, they teach a lot of things, even, I mean, I remember when I look back, it wasn't like the teaching that we have today where you sit down and you say, okay, this, this, you know, it, they showed it, they did it by, for example, they would take you, they take you and they, they, like, they put me in the middle of this, this, area in the middle of the jungle like it's this this I remember it was really beautiful and they would say okay stretch your arms out close your eyes and hear hear everything hear it don't see it don't smell it don't taste it hear it feel it feel it and they always said you can feel you can feel things with your hands you can feel the atmosphere you can feel and and you begin to do that as a child because that's you need that to survive. It's it's survival skills. You don't have that. You die. If you cannot sense things before they come, you die. Earthquakes, they can sense. Storms, they can sense. And I was at a one point so good, I could sense before a storm came, before a war. The day before a war would start, I would sense it. It's it's incredible what, what knowledge they have. And they weren't even that aware of it. For them, it was normal. So for me, when I came out of the jungle at 17, I thought that's normal. And one of the things I, I one of the things is that in, in these, in, and I've come across this in a number of tribes also, um, screaming, yelling, yelling is you only do that when you're about to kill someone. Yelling and screaming have generally only to do with danger. So when I came to the Western society, for it was for me one of the th- one of the things that I learned here in Western society was fear. I was never afraid. I, I don't ever remember being afraid as a child, like really deathly afraid, like to the point I'm going to die. It was only when I came here. And it didn't have to do with the fact that anybody attacked me, but it was that which I could sense and feel. People scream, people yell, people are very aggressive here for me, which is ironic when you think, well, the Fayu, they were fighting and killing each other, but it was different. And it was something else. And, and when I came here, I remember uh, I was 17, and I had seen, you know, of course, I had visited Germany before. I had even, you know, I, I did see the Western world, but it's very different when you come as a tourist than if you're actually trying to integrate into a society, especially when you look like everyone else. I think if I had been black, it would have been easier for me, but I looked like everyone else. So nobody understood this. So, you know, so my, I always say, if you had put me into the city at the age of 12, I wouldn't have survived. If you'd put me in the middle of the jungle, I would have survived. I was mm-hmm. raised to survive in the jungle. My instincts, my my feelings, my way of thinking, my reaction, 
everything was geared to survive in the jungle, which means that my senses, my smell, my my feeling, everything was much more sensitive, much more developed than that someone who grew up here in the Western society. But there were other parts of my brain that weren't developed. So, you know, like coming here at 17, you know, there was, I had a lot of catching up to do. And I don't even know if I'll ever truly catch up, but it, it was quite a change. Okay. Um, well, it's, it's interesting that what you mentioned about the senses, because, um, you know, in, in neuroscience, so uh, at least from, from what I know of what people are researching, um, so there, there are a lot of people who are doing, um, who, who are doing research in vision and some people who are doing in audition um, hearing. And then the people who, who are working on the sense of smell, so that is, is often seen as something which is like more relevant to mice. And of course we do studies on, on mice, but mice have like a very strong sense of smell. Um, and humans, it's seen as like one of our weaker senses, even though there was there was one study that uh, that they always mention where um, there was one professor who got a, who who basically took a chocolate bar and dragged it on the ground. And he he had his like graduate students follow the trail of the chocolate bar to see if they could smell it. So they were like crawling on the on the ground trying to smell the, the chocolate bar. Um, and, and they were they were able to do it. So so it seems like we do have uh, it's not that our sense of smell um is is that bad it's just that we're we that at least in the western world it is not something that we're trained to use very heavily and and it seems that from from a biological standpoint a huge part of our genome um is devoted to um to just encoding the cells um in our in our nose the olfactory receptors um that that are able to detect all of these different smells um, so just yeah, as, as as a point of curiosity, uh, specifically, um, how how did smell sort of uh, how was that part of your life in the jungle? How did you use your sense of smell? Oh, it's very important, very very important. Um, you can smell, you can smell. It's incredible what you can smell. And I this is the, this is my theory always. I mean, of course, I'm not like super studied like you are or anything, but. I can only talk from the experience that I've seen and, you know, obviously experienced myself. Um, smell, your senses for me are like a muscle, the, especially and, and especially when you use them as a child, you can develop them quite far. But to this day, I have an incredible, I smell things. I, I, I know things by smelling things. I do this to this day. I have to smell like even when I cook food, I don't eat, taste it. I smell it. And then I know, okay, good or bad. I can smell things. So when you're, when you're, for example, one of the things is when you're in the jungle, when you're hunting or when you're in the jungle, you can, animals have different smells. Water has a smell. Um, trees have a different smell. Danger has a different smell. Humans have a different smell. Everything has a smell. Everything. So if you learn to shut down your other senses, you can actually, by your smell, your sense of smell, you can recognize things. For example, you can smell water. You can smell a wild pig as versus to a snake. Uh, of course, there's something you can't smell, but you can smell swamp. You can smell dry land. You can smell, you know, the air. You can smell the trees. You can smell the rain. You can smell the sun. You can smell what time it is. The, the morning has a different smell than the afternoon, than the evening. Um, uh, mosquitoes have a smell. So you come into areas where there's a lot of mosquitoes, you can smell it. 
everything around you. We have an incredible amount. We could pick up so much by smell. You know the the what you say. I don't know. There's an expression we have in German. Um, it, when someone says, "I can't smell that person," when you don't like someone, I can't smell that person. And and there's they always say there's a, there's a reason why this saying came out. And it, it it's like that. You can tell. Well, someone once told me. I don't know if it's true, but. You can you can tell if you genetically like if you're good with someone if you're genetically fit with someone by smelling them. The first way a child recognizes newborn recognizes mother I was told is through smell. Um, smell I find is incredibly important and and I think to this day may, maybe people are not like the everyday person is not that aware of how much we actually do use our smell. So it, it's uh, even for, I remember a friend was talking about, you know, she uses aromatherapy, the, the incredible difference it's made in her life and her children. And to this day, I'm, I'm totally obsessed with smells, by the way. I'm just really obsessed with smells because it makes me, like there are smells that make me so happy. There are smells that make me excited. There's smells that make me angry. There's, there's smells that trigger off my, you know, my warning signals my, in my head. So, yes, I do believe smell is, is underrated really it's incredible. Uh, yeah uh, that's that's really interesting um okay so there are there are a few more points um that i want to ask you about uh, one one is in terms of um the uh political structure that you uh, observed among the Fayu and also um the some of the other tribes that that you've experienced so you said that there was um, a tribe chief, but was there some other some other sort of hierarchy? What was what was the chief's role? What other what sort of institutions in terms of like legal institutions and whatnot were there? Well, it was it was definitely a chieftain system. Uh, there was a chief. He had the absolute authority. He was also had a lot of responsibility. For example, a chief did have the responsibility to find wives for the younger men. So they would go on hunting parties, steal wives from other villages if there weren't enough women. Um, so th the chief was mainly responsible for everything that had to do with like war situation. Then there were the elders, the ones that were a bit older, uh, that were the main warriors. They had a lot of say also. And they, uh, you know, they had a lot to, a lot to, they were, they were mainly the ones that were made the main decisions for when it came to war but the absolute authority did lie with the chief. That was the absolute authority. If the chief said something, that's what was done. That's the way it was with the Fayu. There are different tribes that are different systems. But most of tribal people, they do have one person that is the absolute chief. Now, what what I've noticed a lot, what I've seen in a lot of other tribes also, same with the Fayu tribe, was that the chiefs, the, the power of the chief does get inherit does go on to his son but not necessarily now in the case with the fayu is that the fayu had a uh, the chief bao had a son chief bao was from the iatica he was the group that was one of the main groups that i that we were with um so he had a son now the son was not a leader and because you know everybody knows each other since they're small and this was recognized very early that chief spouse son was just not a leader type. So what they ended up doing is they ended up designating another boy that was picked out, which was, uh, his name was Klaus Ubosa. He was named after my father and he showed leadership skills at a very young age. And his father was one of the main, he was like the second under in command. So right under Chief Bao was Naki, uh, it was uh, Kologoy. And it was Kologoy whose son who actually ended up becoming chief 
because they said, you know, uh, this man has leadership qualities and you're, you're for life. You don't get voted off. Now, of course, there's always the possibility that if everyone says this chief is damaging us, they probably could put him down. So it, it was it was a system where when the chief was a chief, everyone said what he did. But if there were any issues, then yes, you know, um, if he didn't do a good job, he could be put down. He could be, you know, probably killed. I don't know. They did. They could get rid of him if, if it just didn't work out. So they do. They did make an effort. And I have to say they they did a good job in choosing chiefs. And I've noticed that in other villages also. I've, I've come across very, I can't even think, there, I'm sure there are. Um, so, but from my experience, I so far have not come across a situation that I know of where a chief did not do a good job. Mm-hmm. And, and what, yeah, and what, what, is, what is the process by which they choose the, the chief? Is it like democratic in some way? It's, it's the men. Uh, it's mostly the men that, that decide, although I do know that the women behind the scenes, like everywhere in the world, <laughs> they do use their tricks to influence. But generally, it's the men that decide. And the fire tribe is very small. It's not a lot of people. So they, they get together and they, they, do, they, do, um, they do discuss it. And if there's any big decisions to be made, we notice that later on also, that it, it is done, it is done um, in a very collective way. For example, we noticed, for example, let's say there was there was an issue we had where there there's a lot of um, there's a lot of strict uh, rules about marriage and divorce and things like that, which you know or leaving or whatever. They don't really have marriage in, in our terms. It's a bit different. But there was a situation where there was a young man who did have a relationship with another woman who was married. So <clears throat> the question is what to do. And the Fayu before in the beginning they only had one form of punishment that was death there's that was for them that they, they weren't even aware if imagine they weren't even aware that there could be another way to punish someone in a trust so if you did something wrong you were killed even if it was your own member you had to kill them so you know obviously this was after peace and all that so they had this situation and what i i was a teenager at the time and i i remember watching this and what they did is they took the man and the woman they put the the couple in the middle of everyone and what they did, which I found interesting, is that at that, you know, they put them in, in the middle and they said, okay, now everyone has a chance to give their side of the story. Everyone. Even the smallest member of the tribe. Everyone had a chance. And, you know, this takes hours. Everyone had a chance to stand up and say, you know, I think that this and this and this and, you know, and this and this and this. And I think this would happen. So everyone had a voice. But at the end of all of this including the women yes including the Mm. women yes yeah and i and i picked this up also in other cultures i i've i've witnessed i i do know of another case of actually with a with a with a um a a boy a white white boy i I grew up you know he also grew up there he actually married a a local girl and they had a lot of issues also and he was telling me this story he had exactly the same experience because he ended up you know leaving her and they had a court case and it's incredible that everyone has a chance to get up and to say, you know, this is, I'm hurt, or, you know, I think it's okay what they did, or I think it's really bad what they did. Everyone has a voice. I mean, there's not a lot of people, you know, so it's doable. So, so at least the, you know, the adults or whatever, they get up and they all, women and men have a chance to say it. Now, at the end of the day, when they're done, a punishment is decided upon. Now it's with compensation. You compensate with food, with whatever. So you do a compensation. Pigs, pigs have, have, play a very, very important role 
you know, not kosher, but in their culture, it's like the main, it, it, uh, wild pigs are very important. It's, it's money for them. Wild pigs are money. So a lot of, uh, now they do it with compensation. So you compensate, you know, the, the man compensates the husband of the woman he slept with, the woman compensates the woman of the guy he slept with and everything. But what is so unique is that when this compensation has been paid and everyone has had their say, it's over. It doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't exist. It's finished. And a line is pulled through. And that's it. And the next day, everything's back to as it was before. And no one talks about it because it's forgiven and it's paid up. And that is something that we found to be very unique in, in, in many, in this culture and other cultures I've come across. There's no, it, when something is paid up, you're forgiven and you forgive and there's no more caring bitterness and anger and resentment in your heart. And I've, I used to go to these, um, you call them compensation, uh, uh, you know, uh, events. I've, I've, I've been to quite a number of them where everyone gets up and says, and there's always food involved, which is great. You know, it's free food. And, um, and I'm always amazed. And, and I was once also involved in a situation where I was pulled into something I didn't want to get pulled into. And I was just, I was just blown away by, by going there. And even, and there's the other thing also I found interesting, is even if you've done nothing wrong, you still get up and you say, you know, I'm really sorry if I, you know, at the end, if I hurt anybody and it wasn't my intention and, you know, I forgive you and please forgive me. And then everyone just sort of shakes hands, compensations are paid, everyone eats and it's finished. And it can be your worst enemy. And the next day, it's over. They're your friends. They come, they help, they smile at you, they do whatever, and it's finished. And that is something that I, I always found very unique. And that's that's what we also experienced with the fire at that time when I was a teenager, that despite it having been, you know, in such a small society, these things are more complicated, um, you know, cheating and all that. So, so, but the next day, it was, it was good. It was fine. So, that's, yeah. That's fascinating, and but but you said that at one point they only had the death penalty. So so how did that transition happen from death penalty to this sort of uh, restorative justice thing where everyone is is like happy the next day? Um, how how did that happen? Well, that that is yeah, that's that's um, that's quite a story. Um, as I mentioned before, my parents are um, my parents were missionaries, so they they were very much into the Bible. And one of the things that they, that I'm not, by the way, I'm not Christian. I'm, I'm Jewish, obviously, <laughs> Judaism. So I'm in the process of converting. Um, so, so what, one of the things that my parents always believed in was forgiveness. And we, when we first moved to the Fai, we had a, a, a big problem with them stealing. They used to steal our things because we, we would live in the jungle. Then we'd go back to the jungle base for a while, stock up on food, whatever, we, you know, whatever we needed. Then we'd go back to the Fayu, live, you know, we were there for a while. Then we'd go back. So, but every time we would go to back to the jungle base and then back to the Fayu, they'd, they broke into the house, you know, not, not that difficult to break into and they would steal and it didn't matter what we do. They would steal our stuff. And, you know, it, if you imagine it, it is something, there are things in this world, which, for you may seem like such a small thing, but ha that has an incredible value in the jungle. And one of these things is a bucket. Now you imagine, there is no store 
in the jungle and you only we can only take certain amount of weight with you when you go with a helicopter or with a boat you can only take the, so many kilos with you so you can't each time bring an entire household with you it's really so we only have one or two buckets and those are incredible valuable because you can't wash clothes without a bucket you can't carry water without a bucket you can't do anything a cup there's no cup in the jungle. There's no way to hold water. So something as simple as a bucket becomes valuable. So we would leave the buckets there. Of course, you know, they were gone. Everything was gone. And it was really frustrating for my parents. So one day they, they, we came back, everything was gone again. And the, the, the fire, some of the fire came to my father because fire, you don't lie, by the way, they don't know how to lie. It's also another interesting concept. They don't lie. They don't know how I grew up in a world where there's lying did not exist. So when, which got me into a lot of trouble, by the way, because they could never keep secrets and they can't keep secrets. Why you cannot keep secrets. It's incredible. I tried it so many times as a child, you know, they always told on me if I did something that I wasn't supposed to. So, so the, um, we came back and the fire, of course, right away, they came, as soon as we get out of the helicopter or the boat, the fire, you all come running. And the first thing they do is they tell my parents, okay, this person stole this and this person stole this and this person, they give us a complete rundown who stole what. And, and, you know, and so there was a situation where we came back and they came and they said, yeah, there's this guy, he's from another clan. He came and he stole and he took everything. So according to the fire uh, law system, my father has a right to kill him because there's no other, you know, you steal, you can kill that person. You have a right to kill that person. And we were there a few days and this guy came, he came and he was really afraid. And so my father's standing there. And he came out of the jungle and his whole body was shaking because he knew, okay, this is it. You know, of course, you can say, why did he even come? I don't know. But he came. Maybe my father asked him to come. Could be that my father didn't call. I don't remember because I just remember watching this. And he came out of the jungle and he was shaking. And my father went up to him and took him. And now the Fayu, I have to go back a bit. The Fayu, when they greet each other, they greet each other by rubbing foreheads. Like we shake hands or we hug, they rub foreheads. That's the fire way of greeting. So the guy came out. My father went up to him and he said he rubbed his forehead, which is a sign of peace. And he said to him, listen, he said, I know that you stole all these things from my house. But to tell you, but he said, I forgive you. And to show you, I'm not angry at you. On top of everything you stole, I'm going to give you this bush knife. Now, of course, that goes against every human logic to give someone something on top of what they've stolen. But for them, they were sitting there and they were so it was like something just, you know, in their there's something just began to change because they were like, wait a minute, there is another day, another way. And it wasn't another way by someone saying you need to forgive, you know, talk is cheap. And you need to do this. No, they saw with their own eyes. Here is a man who came in all the time and everything was always stolen from this, the white man or the colorless man, as they would call us. And he, you know, and a man came out and he said, hey, I'm not angry. Here, take this. They take this on top of everything you stole. So the guy, he didn't know how to react to it. And my father said it was really hard. He said it was really because he was really angry, you know, because it was costing. It was complicated. But the guy turned around, went back into the bush. and. Not long after that, we had a similar situation, and that was the one that changed everything. Well, there were two, two situations actually. Um, we same situation. We we you know we don't have a lot of food in the jungle, and someone had gone hunting and had brought us crocodile, crocodile, and we always get the tail of the crocodile. So we were we were roasting it on the we we would always um, 
uh, steam, not steam it, we would smoke it outside on the rack. And my mom was standing in the house and she saw that the son of Chief Bao came, the one that ended up not being chief. And he looked around, he thought no one was watching, and he took a piece of meat and he wanted to run away. And my mom was like, hey, that's our meat, you know. So he was really shocked. He put it back on the fire and he disappeared. And, you know, we heard his father, Chief Bao, who, who had his house quite a distance from us, we heard him screaming at his son to to our house. I mean, he was so because in their culture, this is it. His son was doomed to die because he stole. He, this was it. You know, he 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 was so angry at his son because he thought this is it. My son is now going to be punished. He's going to die. So my parents discussed what to do. My mom said, you know, Klaus, Klaus um, why don't you take this piece of meat I wrapped up and go tell Chief Bao that you're not angry at his son and give this, you know, meat to the chief, to the chief's son. So we did that. And I remember following my father, you know, I was following him. We went to the chief Bao house, chief Bao's house or hut. And my father said to Chief Bao, you know, can you please call your son? I want to talk to him. And, and Chief Bao was so, I mean, the, the look in his face, I will never forget the devastation in his face because he thought this is it I'm going to lose my son and he calls the son out and the son came out and he was like literally shaking like a leaf his whole body was shaking and my father called him to him and he put his arm around him and he said listen I know that you're hungry and we are not angry at you because you stole and you tried to steal the meat and he said listen he said you know I want there to be peace between us and he gave this chief's son you know chief's uh, son he gave him the piece of you know meat that he'd wanted to steal, and you know he took off and probably ate it really fast. And Chief Bao at the time, it was it was almost like a shock for him. It was literally like a shock for him because he saw something that went way beyond anything he could have comprehended because all he'd known his whole life was war and death, and there was nothing. And all of a sudden, he saw something, and it, it triggered something in his mind, and. I remember, and, and and it was actually from that point on that he changed. And if you change a chief, everyone changes with it. It's, it's a, the system they have there. So I remember when we were walking back to the house, my father, you know, talked to me. And he said to me, he said, you know, he said, he, he talked to me and he said, it, it is very difficult to forgive. But he said, the power of forgiving is more, is, is more power and can change everything as compared to the power of hate he says it can it can destroy hate you know and and i never forgot that and it was from that time on that the the stealing from at least two clans started stopped it stopped and it stopped completely when one other clan that lived way up river, they stole one more time from us. And the guy who stole from us, and this is now, they're, they're very superstitious people. He stole from us. He stole some stuff out of the house. And he was walking in the jungle and he was hit by lightning. And he, they say he burned down to his bones. That's what they said. He burned, literally burned down to his bones. And of course, that's when they said, you know, that was a punishment for stealing. And from <laughs> that day on, never again did they steal. Never. So, you know, so so that was that was always what what you know we were we were raised with that you can tell people you can talk all you want, but it's the actions for for people who are caught in such you know people who've never known anything else, who've always known one way, who don't know any other punishment but death, all of a sudden saw that there is another way, and from that time on, 
never again was the punishment, uh, the death punishment ever used again. Never again. That was the last time was, well, around that time. And they changed it, you know? So. Wow. Um, okay, so I, I have two more things that I wanted to ask you about, and I don't know how long they'll take. So first of all, do you want a break or something? Do you want to, like, uh, use the bathroom or, or something like that, and then I can just save this recording and pick up? Or are you good? I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Um, so the, the next topic that I wanted to ask you about is um, gender roles, uh, both in uh, the Fayou culture and, again, other, any other uh, cultures that you have uh, come across. Yeah. Um, yeah, gender roles. Yeah. Um, oh, that is a that that is a long one, but we'll keep it short. There's a lot to say about gender roles. Now, it is very traditional, very clear, um, and that is from early on, at least. And I will talk more now about the Fayu. Generally, most I've never so far met a tribe where there was not a very strict you know, separation between men's rules and women's rules, because simply you cannot survive in the, you can't survive without it. You cannot survive without a very clear, you know, separation between men's and women's rules because you need both to survive. You can't, you know, can't without a woman, can't without a man. So I can tell you from the experience of I've had with the FIU uh, today, there's other, you know, examples, but I'll just give this one. Um, the, the, generally, it's split up that the men are responsible for war, protection, building the houses, and hunting. The women are responsible for raising the kids and gathering food and making sago. Sago was the main staple food that they had. It was made from the from the inside of a of a uh, palm tree, and they process it. It's, it's a really very difficult way to process. You have to cut down the tree. You have to split it open. You have to take the inside of it. You have to shred it with water. It's a very long very long, very physical, hard thing to do. But then eventually you have what you call sago out of it. I don't know if people know it. Some people know, some people don't sago. And that's what they eat mainly. It's very, very high on starch. It's uh, a lot of people don't like it when they eat it the first time. I love it, but I grew up on it. And it's very filling, but it's not very nutritious in terms of like being healthy. So that was very clearly uh, separated in that, in that way. Children were raised. Now this starts at a very young age. Um, girls are always with a, with girls are always with the mothers. Boys are always with their fathers. Now with me it was a bit different. Um, I came in, and I was very wild as a child, very wild. Um, so the Fayu, which we only learned later on, which we you know of course had a good laugh about later years later. You know obviously my parents told them I'm a girl. But they had their, they told us later that they had their doubts that my parents were correct because I was so wild. You know, I, I didn't want to be with a woman. I always picked up bow and arrows. I was always with the boys. So they didn't know what to do. So they decided that, you know, could be my parents made a mistake so that they went ahead and they raised me as a boy. And I learned everything a boy learns to hunt, to shoot, to build houses, you know, of course, not war, but everything to do. I learned. But when I became a teenager and they you know like obviously my breasts began to develop and they were like oops she is a girl <laughs> from that day on I was thrown out of the men's world which caused by the way a huge conflict within me and looking back now I understand why you know you from small on you're in one one side of you know the the, the you're on one side because you know I, I grew up in the 
men's world, so to say, and then all of a sudden I was thrown into the woman's world, but I had no, I'd made no connections there. I had, I, I, you know, I wasn't interested in going, you know, doing Sago. I, I was, I, you know, or making nets or whatever. I never learned how to make a net, but hey, I knew how to build a bow and arrow. So, and it caused a lot of conflict and, and, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't belong anywhere anymore. So that, that was, that was very, you know, very strictly, like I've never seen a fire girl with a bow and arrow. Never. And um, so they, they marry very young. As soon as, as, pretty much as soon as they go into puberty, they can get married, which is 13, 14, 15. They get married very young. And that, that in, in itself is a whole story of how, you know, how they, you steal women there. Actually, you don't, you know, you don't uh, court them. You steal them. You take them into the jungle. And if you manage to keep them there for three days, you're married, even if the father didn't like you. Yeah. <laughs> so, but try, wow. seriously. But yeah, but it's it's good, you know. Try keeping a woman in the jungle for three days if she doesn't want to stay with you. It's interesting. And when you come back, even if the parents were against the marriage, it's accepted. Can't change it. So that's the way marriages uh, used to, you know, that's the way they used. That was marriage for them. Then she moves into his hut, and then that's it. So uh, they do have a polygamy. They can have more than one woman. Uh, they do. I think the most we've ever had was five. There was a chief who had five women, but generally not the chiefs. They have usually not more than three, uh, which caused an issue because there were not enough women, which has also been stopped because they began to say, you know, I think it was Chief Bao who, who changed it before he died, I believe. Or it was Kologoy. I don't know what someone changed it. Uh, I heard. And now it's only one man, per, one woman for one man. And that way all the young men had women, which they didn't have before. They have to go steal them from other tribes. They stole women, by the way, too. So um, now what's interesting, though, and here is, again, a lot of people may look onto this and think, you know, oh, this is, you know, women didn't have rights there. That's not exactly true. They did because which uh, yeah, I think only happened once that I remember. But uh, in their culture, a a, a man would is never allowed to divorce the woman. You can never. If you, you know, have a wife or two or three, you are never able to get rid of her. Never. You're stuck with her the rest of your life. But a woman is able to leave a man. She's only, though, able to leave a man if she finds another man who's willing to take her and her children. So, it didn't happen often because for them, they don't marry out of love. You know, they marry just out of you know, practicality of survival or having children. You know, uh, we do have a few cases and we did later on, but very, very seldom. So the woman could leave if she decides, you know, this is not. So the women actually, they didn't. And they also, women didn't really have a say on who they wanted to marry. Like if the chief said, I want you to marry, you know, this guy. And she didn't want to. Oftentimes she would be forced but then she had the possibility afterwards to, you know, be kidnapped by another man for three days. And then there's nothing anybody can do. But you have to find someone who's willing to take you and the, ch and the children always stay with the mother. So uh, that was the situation. Later on, we did notice that even though the men were the ones that did all the talking and, you know, all the storytelling, uh, the women began to hold a very strong position later on, especially when it came to. Uh, I think about uh, 20 or 25 years after we'd been there, that we'd had peace for like over 10 years. We had a new flare up of war and things began to escalate again. And my father filmed this, by the way, he filmed this incident where the women stood up and 
And what triggered, by the way, coming back to smell, you know what triggered this new conflict, this new uprising uh, of war was smell. What had happened was that there was a big part, there was a big celebration. And they killed, I think on that day, they killed like 20 wild, 20 pigs. And the smell of blood brought back this behavior. And my father, he said he never did that again. He said that was the only only time he, you know, it, he, he didn't organize. It was organized by, I don't know who it was organized by. But but my father, he, he, he realized that. And he, he, he said to me when he could, he, he said everything smelled like blood. And he, he said he knew at that minute things were not going to go well. And sure enough, he said they began to get so aggressive. So when they started fighting and the whole thing started again, the same pattern, it was the woman who stood up and said, no, this is it. And they stopped it. And from this day to this day, if there's any conflicts, right away, the women get involved. And that that has been a great, I mean, for us, it was incredible to see. But they walked right in between. Before, if, if the war broke out, the women used to run into the bush. They would never. Now, they run right in between and they pull the men apart. They take the bows. And I mean, I've seen women literally take, I saw this one woman, she took the bow away from, from, the, from the husband and she started beating him with it. You know? So, <laughs> so... So, yeah, so they, they, they stopped it. So, yeah, so in that sense, the women have a lot more shame than they used to have. I mean, it's, it's gotten better. Uh, there was, uh, when we came also, situations where the men would beat women uh, really bad. That's also stopped. That's, that's, that's been stopped. And to be honest, it, just, it was just things that developed over time where they said, no, we don't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but the strong gender roles in terms of um, education and, and roles in terms of uh, what people learn and what skills people learn, that's still there? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, except me. <laughs> I went, when I went right. back, they sort of, they tolerate it because, you know, they, they took me hunting. I, I just said, please, one more, please, please, please. Just, I just, <laughs> you know, it, it, you know, when you hunt, there's an adrenaline which is incredible there, there's an ad i have these people can run at a speed that is not human when they hunt and the the reactions and the i mean there's there's so much when you go hunting i have pictures of it you know it's just there's it's so people this is like western society people they have a hard time understanding it they don't understand it and they they i often got very negative feedback because I would say these things and that was one of the things that I really had a hard time understanding in the beginning because I said well what's wrong with it and hunting you know you shouldn't hunt poor animals whatever but you have to understand these people don't hunt for pleasure for sport they hunt for food and I remember that when you when you actually you know oftentimes it's very hard to kill an animal right away so but when like when you injure an animal and the animal's dying what they do is they, you put your hands on, on the animal, you know, they, they say, okay, put your hands on it, put your hands on it, you know, and you can feel life leave the animal. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a very, very beautiful moment. And, and people don't understand that. And they think, you know, I'm savage. I don't know. They, they think I'm mental. I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's one of the many things that I, I eventually stopped talking about because I always felt like people didn't really understand yeah, people people are more comfortable with factory farming and having animals in these like tiny little cubicles where they can't move, but and <laughs> and you know shipping them off to to be slaughtered in this assembly line. 
But, you know, as long as you don't see it with your own eyes and feel it with your own hands, so then it's okay. We can, like, forget about it. You know, yeah. <laughs> I think that's, that's the Western attitude. Uh, yeah. Instead of... Instead of embracing the sort of, uh, you know, the aggression and and, um, and predatory nature, which is really the part of us and deep rooted in our in our biology as carnivores. Um, so it uh, it doesn't it doesn't bother me on on that level. Um, like I, I definitely I understand where it comes from. Um, okay, so oh, yeah. the. Yeah. Um, the final thing. Oh, oh. Also, just on the topic of gender, I wanted to ask your opinion about um, how how does the the um, attitude towards gender um, that you grew up with uh, sort of compare with um, how we think about gender now in the Western world? Not not that. I, I don't think that that we are settled yet on what 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 the, the zeitgeist in the Western world is on gender. I feel like there's a lot of confusion, um, and it's just interesting to you that you, uh, to me that you said that that in the jungle it's like obvious that you have to have separate roles. So I was wondering what your what your take is on on what's what's happening now uh, in the Western in the West in terms of gender and why it was so obvious to you in the jungle that it had to be this way, that it had to be separate roles. Well, I've I find that societies, this is my own personal experience. Um, I find that societies where there's a very clear gender roles, from my experience, are much more content. Now, I am absolutely for, you know, I am the first person who says, you know, I think women should be able to do everything men should be allowed to do and so on and so on. But what I've noticed is that that I find... I don't know. I find it, 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 that's one of the things I'm also torn on because I see, I think that a lot of how we are depends on our survival. Everything for me has to do with survival. This is what people, like, this is the way I survived here. For me, living in the Western world was learning to survive. Now, how do we survive? Now, there are certain things we don't need anymore to survive here. And when you don't need these anymore, things begin to change. For example, like I said, in the jungle, you need to have these gender roles. Otherwise, you don't survive. Now, we live in a society where we don't really need them anymore because, you know, a woman can earn money. She, you know, men, I mean, the things that in the, the it, it, it's incredible how fast everything is changing here. But the roles in itself are also changing. And, and. We don't need, you know, a, a, man, a woman doesn't have to stay home and a man doesn't have to go hunting in order to survive. We don't need that anymore. So there is a change of the role, but I think both men and women are changing. Men are, you know, I see more and more men staying home raising the kids and I, men can be wonderful fathers too. I see women more going to work. They say, listen, I'm not fulfilled at home. But at the same time, what I do see in in societies here is that there's a, like, I feel like families are falling apart. I don't see it, but I do believe it will come back. I see this on my own kids that are now getting married and have, you know, God willing, God willing, have my first grandchild next year. So <laughs> I'm so, so, so sad. So hoping. So, you know, I noticed that, for example, this new generation is starting. No, we want big families again. But there is somehow you lose something when you don't have this this family, it, you know, however it's set up, if you don't have a family setting, if you don't have a family, it, it, you lose something. And I, you know, even though I've spent my life here and there and everywhere, one of the things that I 
personally that I've experienced is the most content people I've seen. Have being content or happy in life have nothing to do with how much money you have, where you live, what your background is. I have seen people in the jungle with nothing who are happy. I've seen people living in palaces who are miserable and vice versa. I've seen people in the jungle miserable and people in palaces who are happy. But what I've noticed and what I've looked when I look at these people, I said, there's one thing I know it's the people that were happy generally had a very strong family bond and they had roots. These people had roots. I don't have roots in a way. And that's not good. And I can't explain it yet. I mean, this is one of the reasons I so would love to study anthropology. I would love because I, I have the practical, but I, I don't really have the theory to it. I can't explain it. I can tell you what I see and what I feel and what I've noticed, but I cannot explain it. And that's why, for example, you know, when I went back to the jungle and I began to, you know, look at these tribes on a different view, you know, being an adult, I began to realize, oh, this is why I am, and this is why I act this way, and this is why I react in a way, because I began to understand myself. But um, as for gender roles, I, you know, if you, you can't, like, for example, you're in Switzerland, you can't, both parents have to work, you can't survive here otherwise. And here we come back again to survival. You need both parents to work, so you have to adapt to it. But... Right. Uh, yeah, but in these in the tribal systems, they, they you have to you have you know woman has to do the kids and do hunt you know gather the food and the men have to go hunting and otherwise you die. So, and, right. uh, yeah. Okay, so the the last thing that I wanted to ask you about, which is also I think one of the last topics we discussed when we when we met, um, was uh, is is magic. Um, so you told me that you that you believe in in magic and that you you have observed people practicing magic. Um, and to me, as a Western person scientifically trained, uh, my my intuition is that um, this this is false and you must be imagining it or you must have been hallucinating when you saw it or, or something like that. Um, so uh, but that. Um, uh, sort of disclosure being said, can you can you say something about um, what what magic is to you, what you have observed, um, and and what what role it plays uh, in in the Fayu culture? Well, the Fayu itself, they didn't have magic because they were, like I said, a dying culture. So a lot of what I did see and experience did come from other cultures. Now, of course, you know, being you know learning about Judaism and all that, I don't really you know. I, I never do get involved in it in one way or the other. But um, magic in itself is a very interesting subject because in, in, in order to explain it, I, there's one thing I, I want to say which I find very interesting. When I, when I go, like you said before, you know, being a scientist, you look at this and you think, oh, you know, she's got to be really crazy to believe it. Now, when, when you go into the – when I go into the jungle and I sit down with these tribal people and, and they ask me, you know, tell us about where you're from. Tell us what your world is like, the world where you come from, the outside world, generally the outside world. So I try to tell them about cars. Uh, I try to explain them about electricity. I try to explain them what, you know, how I got there in an airplane. I flew in the sky. Oh, boy. Tovia, they're on the floor laughing. They say you are crazy. No one can fly. 
you know, and I tell them about a box and it's got like four round things and we sit in it and then we put our foot down and we move forward and they just, they think it's the funny sort and I'm their amusement because they think I'm crazy. That doesn't exist. So then I come into the Western world here and people ask me, tell us what, you know, that world is like. And then I tell them stories that, you know, that, you know, like, for example, the magic stories and everyone looks at me and says, you're crazy. That doesn't exist. So my, I believe that there are things out there that are probably one day will have an explanation, a scientific explanation, because we haven't explored everything. One day, maybe there will be an explanation to how this is possible, why this is possible. And one of the things that I've, I've I learned very early is that um, every every tribe, local indigenous population I've ever met in my life, all of them are very, very closely bound to nature and they're very spiritual. Even if like the Fayu, they only believe in an evil spirit. They believe in something. Now, there are some some people, especially in Papua New Guinea, I've experienced a lot of that. And I've, you know, I've, I've always found it fascinating that they go even further, that they are able to do things that we are not able to do. But they, but they do them oftentimes by by using plants and words. Now, for example, uh, I'll give you an example. There is there is this um, ginger. It's a wild ginger. You take this wild ginger, you you chew it, and you take it out, and you say words to it, and you throw it into the water, and you don't even have to go. The fish just come in swarms, and you can just take whatever fish you want. Now, someone can say, yeah, but that can be chance. No, it's not chance because I've seen it over and over again. There are people that do this. Another example is uh, we were walking up in the mountains and um, and I couldn't walk anymore. I, I couldn't walk. I, I was so weak. I couldn't walk. And I, I just said, I can't take it and take another step. And we had to move. So they went in the bush and they got this, these, these like this plant, this bush, like a, like twigs or whatever. They looked like twigs. They were a certain plant. And they threw them, they, they, you know, they hit them against my legs and they, they said words I couldn't understand. They don't even know what they mean. They have no idea where it's from. And all of a sudden, um, it was like I was, I was lifted up. It felt like I was literally lifted up off the ground. You know, obviously I was, but I was lifted up and I walked for hours and I felt nothing. Abs- I wasn't tired, nothing. Now, of course, we can say, okay, could be have been the plant, could have what it is. Um, there are other people that are able to do or a, crazy. Or a, or a placebo effect, yeah. Yeah, or yeah, or that. I don't know. So, well, except the fish. I don't think the fish know what placebo effect is. Right. No. I mean, I mean, I mean, for the fish, it's 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 also it's possible that um you know that, that the smell was something that they were attracted to. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So not 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 yeah. So none of this sounds to me that far fetched no. or that magical. No. Yet. No. These are what do you call? There's different types of magic systems there. There's what you have the plant ones. Uh, then you go into the more serious ones and those are the ones where people uh do um where there are um cases of of uh for example where um people are able to transport themselves from one place to another um where they're able to kill uh this is going more in the darker direction uh there is unfortunately not that much for healing healing is done a lot through plants and herbs but what i notice is that Everything that they do when it comes to magic does have to do with plants. And I've seen it. I've seen people do things that are not normal, that are in our world not normal. But when I ask them where this is from, they say that this is knowledge that is passed, has been passed down for 
many, many generations from one generation to the next. And that's when I say to myself, could it be that at one point that there was some kind of some form of knowledge that we've lost, something that we may have known, you know, long, long time ago, which somehow managed to survive in, in you know, through, through these ancient tribes, which have been passing this knowledge down from one to the next. I don't know. I've seen it. I can't explain it. Could be a brain playing tricks on me. I don't know. But, um, but it, you know, but it was pretty, you know, if someone transports himself from one thing to the one place to the next. It's, it's, you know, it, it's, it's very hard to fake that. You know, it's pretty hard to fake that. But, you know. But, and, and that's, but, that's something that you've observed? Yeah, I've observed that, yeah. So, so, so I mean, yeah. from it, you know, I've stayed away from it because I learned uh, very early on to stay, you stay away from these things. You know, it's, for example, another, another example I had was, I mean, we, you know, I don't know how much this has to do with, maybe these are plants that we're not even aware of or ability, you know, I don't know. But I remember when I was a little girl, I was, I was, I went to a, another tribe. We were in the jungle base and they were called the Bowsies. It's another tribe. And there was a woman, she was a witch, like she was a, she was considered a shaman witch, whatever. She lived outside of the village. And she, um, she, you know, I, I was curious. We were kids. We were curious. So we were, we went to her place because she had all these things in her house. And, and, and we went out. I was, I was standing outside, and and she, she, she took an interest in me. And she, uh, like, she, she took her, she took her hand, and she, I didn't even see her. She was standing behind me. It's like, Ugh, you know, freaked me out in the first moment. And she put her hand on my shoulder, and she said, "Look up in the tree." And I looked up, and uh, she said, I'm going to show you something. And on that second, when she said that, she, she literally, I don't know, you know, it was, it was almost like there was like someone put like a magnet, you know, these, what do you call these, these things, these, um, to see binoculars, binoculars, but like one, you know, all of a sudden the tree, there was a bird sitting on a tree. It was really far away. She brought the entire bird and tree so close up that it was right in front of us. So Either the tree was brought to us or we were brought to the tree. I don't know how she did it, but I know that I freaked out. And she brought it really close, and then it was back. And she said to me, did you like that? And I ran away. I was so scared. Now, children in itself, you you know, this was not something where I was said, okay, this is going to happen. Or, you know, th this was something that was totally out of the blue. And I could never explain it. I can't explain it. Maybe one day we'll, you know, someone is who says, yes, you know, because of this or this or that or that. Maybe there is. But if you think of it, you know, all the knowledge that we've gained in the last 100 years, if I go and I tell the, you know, tribal people, hey, we get into an airplane and we fly, they're like, woo, magic. You know, they think it's magic. We know it's not. We know it's physics, you know? So, right. It, yeah. I Seen a lot. I can't explain it. I cannot explain it. And I and I'm really someone. I'm very you know very stable in my head because I've grew up with this. I'm very. I I know. I know a lot of it is you know illusion. A lot of it is people. You know, it's amazing what you can make people believe. But there are things that I cannot explain. I just right. Can't. And yeah, I, I think it is definitely it is valuable to be open to the possibility um, that uh, that there is knowledge. Uh, in um, you know these these cultures that um, we as Western people just have never seen and don't have access to, um, and and it and might be stuff that we don't know. 
Um, but I would my my attitude is still, you know, let's go with our with our Western scientific tradition and let's explore these things and see whether they're real or not. That's that's sort of the attitude that I would take. And so people people are are doing this somewhat with things like traditional Chinese medicine and things like that, and and um, uh, you know acupuncture. Um, and there are uh, mixed results, usually not uh, especially positive. But then again, a lot of stuff that comes out of the Western medical pharmaceutical establishment, you know, if you really subject it to the test and, and you don't uh, um, you don't play all the games that pharmaceutical companies play where they do 19 studies that don't show a significant effect and then the 20th does and they show it to the FDA, uh, you know, so, so I uh, sometimes, you know, it's a question. Uh, you know, are, are we being uh, sort of having more more rigorous demands for these traditional things than for what's coming out of pharmaceutical companies? But that's that's sort of a separate topic. Yeah. Um, no, but talking talking about that, that's that's one of one of the things that I've always loved was you know plants. And there is talking. I mean, this has you know obviously I stayed away from all the magical stuff, but there is something that these people have, which uh, the Fayu not, but other tribes they have an incredible knowledge of plants both in you know skincare cosmetic and medicinal and there's one thing is when i'm there i never have malaria never they have because i remember when you know if you go to a lot of these places they have someone once told me when i was there they said you know before the white man came we had our own products we had our own medicine we had our own shampoos we had our own soaps we had our own skin products and they were, he, they said, we never had problems with our skin. We never had problems with our hair. And now they said, you know, when the white man came, they told us that their products are better. She said, we're using all their products. And now we have pimples. Now we have gray hair. Now we have dry skin. She said, it's terrible. So when I was in the jungle, I began to collect, you know, this, I began to collect all this, this knowledge that they had. And because, you know, obviously I'm a woman, you know, I want to be pretty just like everyone else. And, and for example, and I came across these really interesting, uh, you know, recipes that they had. And when I went, came back to civilization, I thought, okay, what am I going to do now? Um, I decided to get together with two partners. And I said, I want to set up a company where we use these knowledge, just ancient, ancient knowledge, these recipes. And, you know, obviously we have to adapt some things to, you know, to modern, modern society. But that we adapt it, not adapt in the sense that we change it, but we, that we make products that come from the jungle of, for example, skincare and hair. For example, a good example is I, I, I was once going on the ocean and we had to stop because there was a storm coming. We came across this island and I got off and I saw these women and I look at their faces and I thought something was really weird. They looked really weird. And when I looked again, I realized that these women, regardless of their age, had perfectly smooth skin they did not have they could be 80 or 8 or 18 or 28 or 30. they did not have a wrinkle in their skin and their skin was very white but only their face so you know at first i thought they were all ill because their faces were so white but yeah perfect skin so i asked them and they they showed me that they make a paste which they put on their face and and i kept that you know and i went back and i tried it and i'm like wow this stuff really works well i mean it doesn't you know obviously it 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 you know it it it's a fantastic so i made it i i actually went i set up a small production site and i think we're going into sales next year uh next year next month in april or so um and or there's a you know there's for example i went in another place no one has gray hair i'm like why doesn't anybody have gray hair hey hair and they show me that they make this this um this this uh, like uh, cream out of a leaf 
you know, several things and they put it on their hair and they, their hair doesn't grow gray. Or, you know, I used something once and my hair grew within one year was down past my waist. So I'm thinking, you know, and, and all this, and I think it's a pity because I, I tell them, I said, stop buying this stuff from the, you know, Chinese trade stores, this cheap shampoo from China, which is only chemical. I said, use your old recipe. They have leaves that, you know, you can, they used, they used to use as soap, you, it lathers and it cleans beautifully. And that's one of the projects that we're doing is, you know, I want to preserve this ancient knowledge that they have. I want to, you know, encourage them. Don't, you know, don't give it up. Keep using it because it's great. So that's one of the projects that I've started doing in, in you know, telling them to preserve what they have. So a lot of great um, knowledge. Okay. So I, I think this is, um, this is a good place to, to stop. And, and I just want to say if, if there are any, um, uh, so you, you have a, a book. Um, and also a movie was made about your experience, right? So can you can you give us the names of those? Oh, that was years ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I wrote I wrote a book. Um, oh, 2000, 2005, many many years ago. Uh, it's uh, it's a story. It's about my childhood. It's called Child of the Jungle, and uh, it's it depends on which language it's it's translated in like thirty languages or something. I know it's hard to get by, but I think you can get it at Kindler. You can still probably get it, but it's called uh, Child of the Jungle in English or Jungle Child. I think England brought out a version called Jungle Child, America, Child of the Jungle. And there's a movie made, uh, a German production company made a movie, but I have to say it's, you know, it's a, it's a cute movie, but it's obviously not, you know, it's a Europeanized I, movie. You know, I always said if I were to, if I, if I had made a movie, based on my childhood i would have done it a lot different i would have done it more you know it it probably would end up being like r-rated <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, um, i can imagine yeah because i mean it's, it's a nice family you know people which i understand they said at the time we want to make a family movie so obviously you, you know the war because for example they did bring in the war but very lightly uh there's a lot of things and i mean we just covered a very very small part of my childhood but so many fascinating stories some of them difficult you know we dealt with malaria infections all these things we dealt with uh conflicts that obviously are not you know in the movie but i those are the things that i find interesting or the conflict of going back you know you take a 17 year old girl from the stone age tribe i time traveled i didn't even have to build a machine to time travel i traveled within 48 hours from a stone age culture to modern society in 48 hours and I tell you, it's tough. It's really tough, but it's not tough in the way people think it is. Now, that I think would have been interesting. How, how do you deal with that, you know? So how do you adjust or how you try to adjust or, you know, and funny stories, too, like, you know, being put my I had a very, very wealthy uncle who, you know, wanted to civilize me. He, that's how I got out of the jungle. I was 17. He said she needs to be civilized. He put me into a Swiss finishing school. I mean, in a castle that like had bars in front of the window. I went from running free in the jungle with no shoes to winter in a castle in Switzerland. I mean, it doesn't get more extremer than that. And but that that's that's another subject of very interesting about, you know, adjusting to learning how to cross the street, learning how to order in a restaurant and what is a cinema? You know, who's Michael Jackson? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, okay. Well, this has been great. Is, is there anything else you want to market, like your uh, 
um, your, the, those cosmetic products that you were talking about, or are they not, not yet ready for prime time? Um, no, when we were starting now, we start, we started producing, I think by next month we'll be ready, but we're, um, they're, they're obviously, they're handmade. They're very complex to make. It's, it's a great product, but I don't think that's the subject of our talk today, but it was just, <laughs> okay. saying, but it was just going back to, you know, how much there is there on, on knowledge that I find is a pity. And I know there's people studying, I know there's people collecting it, but, but a lot of people don't get as deep in as I do obviously, because to be able to go this deep as I do in the jungle, you, you can only do that if you've grown up there. There are very few people, even people who, I know people who go and do all these big treks in the jungle. Uh, it's not a matter of surviving in the jungle. It's a matter of being able to, to to get to the people. And that's difficult if you don't speak their, what I call cultural language. And that that's a whole nother subject also. <laughs> yeah, well, well, maybe maybe we can talk about that some other time. Um, but yeah, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Okay, great. I'll talk to you some other time. Okay. Bye. Bye.